1: Good afternoon, my name is Mary and I will be your conference operator today. I would like to welcome everyone to Apto's Biosciences conference call for second quarter ended June 30, 2021. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during this time, simply press start followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, please press the pound key. Thank you. As a reminder, this conference call may be recorded. I would like to introduce Ms. Susan Pietropaola. Please go ahead.
2: Thank you, Mary. Good afternoon and welcome to the Aptos Biosciences conference call to discuss financial and operational results for the first quarter ended June 30th, 2021. Joining me on today's call are Dr. William G. Rice, Chairman, President, and CEO, Dr. Yodi Morongo, Senior Vice President, Chief Financial Officer, and Chief Business Officer, and Dr. Rafael Behar, Senior Vice President, Chief Medical Officer. Before we proceed, I would like to remind everyone that certain statements made during this call will include forward-looking statements within the meaning of U.S. and Canadian securities laws. Forward-looking statements reflect Aptos's current expectations regarding future events but are not guarantees of performance, and it is possible that actual results and performance could differ materially from these stated expectations. They involve known and unknown risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that may cause actual results, performance, and achievement to differ materially from those expressed. To learn more about these risks and uncertainties, please read the risk factors set forth in Aptos' most recent annual report on Form 10-K and SEC and CEDAR filings. All forward-looking statements made during this call speak only as of the date they are made. Aptos undertakes no obligation to revise or update the statements to reflect events or circumstances after the date of this call, except as required by law. I will now turn the call over to Dr. Rice, Chairman, President, and CEO of Aptos, Aptos Biosciences. Dr.
3: Rice. Thank you, Susan. I'd like to welcome everyone to our call for the second quarter ended June 30th, 2021. The quarter is highlighted by the continued progress of our clinical trials, especially with Lutzeptanib or LUX, in patients with acute myeloid leukemia or AML, and in patients with B cell cancers. We continue to move through dose escalations and our chief medical officer, Dr. Raphael Behar, will bring you through that in a moment. Because we have observed clinical activity in our early cohorts, our clinical sites are highly engaged and we're pleased with the risk patient flow to both our B cell cancer and AML cancer trials. Before I turn it over to Dr. Behart, I'd just like to emphasize the, the continued need for therapies in these hematologic cancers. While there are a number of active drugs on the market and in development, responses are often insufficiently durable and most patients will relapse or develop resistance. Luxeptanib is our oral, highly potent, non-covalent inhibitor of the BTK and FLT3 driver kinases, and it is like no other commercialized or drug under development. I remind you that LUX is more than just a typical FLT3 or BTK inhibitor, as it not only inhibits wild-type and mutant forms of BTK and FLT3, it selectively targets clusters of related kinases and suppresses the mutations that occur in AML and CLL cells that render such cells resistant to other agents and it has been found remarkably safe and well-tolerated to date. Thus far, LUX has been shown clinically to target the primary drivers of B-cell malignancies and AML, including BTK and FLT3, yet with a precision that avoids known targets such as TEC, EGFR, and ERBB2 that are often associated with toxicities. This selectivity is what sets LUX apart from other hematology drugs on the market or in development and what makes it compelling. I'll also remind you, and this point uh, that sometimes gets lost, that the patients in both of our trials are relapsed and refractory patients who already have been treated with and failed by the best available therapies. So the progress we're observing in our ongoing clinical trials in these very difficult-to-treat patient populations is encouraging, and we are hopeful that LUX will prove to be valuable in the armamentum of therapies for a diversity of hematologic cancers. With that, I'll ask Dr. Rafael Behar, our Chief Medical Officer, to provide an overview of our clinical activities. Raf, thank you, Bill. Aptos has three ongoing clinical trials:
4: two studies with our kinase inhibitor, LUXEPIN, or Lux, one in patients with acute five leukemia or AML, and the other in patients with B-cell cancers. And the third trial with our miR repressor, Aptos 253, in patients with AML and MDS. Let's start with our B-cell cancer study. Inclu- this includes chronic lymphocytic leukemia or CLL and non-Hodgkin's lymphomas or NHL who have failed or are intolerant to two or more lines of established therapy, including drugs such as abrutinib, rituximab, and venetoclax, or from whom no other treatment options are available. Indeed, patients in our trial have previously received from 2 to 12 regimens that have failed them, which also may include failure of other investigational agents. As we mentioned in our last call, we've completed four dose levels in our Phase 1 trial of acceptinib and LUX has been well-tolerated in patients treated at 150 milligrams, 300 milligrams, 450 milligrams, and 650 milligrams twice daily over multiple cycles. Of the evaluable patients at these dose levels, two-thirds of them experience dose-related reductions of lesion size or IgM measurements compared to baseline, demonstrating anti-tumor activity. Since our last update, we are well into the expanded 750 milligram dose cohort that is fully enrolled at this time as Dr. Rice mentioned, our recruitment has picked up nicely and we expect to complete the 750 milligram dose level with the currently enrolled patients. Generally, as we described before, we've observed encouraging on-target activity, including tumor reductions in both aggressive and indolent cancers. In a corporate event held in conjunction with the European Hematology Association, or EHA, in early June, we reported some phase one data highlighting our acceptant activity in B-cell malignancies. Intermediate dose levels, as of June 7, had delivered all leading indicators of clinical activity, including target engagement with dose-dependent inhibition of FOSO-BTK, treatment-related lymphocytosis in patients presenting with classic CLL, and tumor reductions across different B-cell malignancies, including follicular lymphoma, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, small lymphocytic leukemia, and Waldenson's macroglobulinemia, a type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. We've observed cases of clear reversal of aggressively growing disease upon interpatient dose escalation and longer times on drug, suggesting that even aggressive disease may be successfully challenged with higher exposure levels and extended dosing duration of luxeptinib. CG PET CT scans in one relapsed follicular lymphoma patient revealed lesion growth during treatment with lexetinib at 450 milligrams BID for seven cycles. Yet, after dose escalation to 600 milligrams BID in cycle eight, lesion measurements demonstrated continuous reduction, and by cycle 15, day one, the target lesion shrank by 43% when compared with peak tumor size. We continue to spotlight the case of this patient from the first half of this year as a reminder that moving to higher and longer exposures to lixetinib, as we expect in the second half of this year, may successfully challenge relapse and refractory disease. It's also important to point out that the data reported during EHA, lixetinib has been generally well-tolerated in 23 relapse refractory B-cell cancer patients, and dose escalation has continued with no concerning drug-related safety trends to date. And so it is our intention, especially as we have begun to observe dose-dependent antitumor activity, to continue further dose escalation to the 900-milligram dose level for extended duration to tackle an increasingly treatment-refractory-presenting population and to get as many patients as possible on these higher dose levels. For more specific information on the trial and the clinical sites that are enrolling patients, please visit clinicaltrials.gov. Now let's turn to LUX in AML. Acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, is a particularly difficult to treat hematologic cancer because LUX potently suppresses GLID-3 and additional oncogenic signaling pathways upon which AML cancers rely for survival and drug resistance, treating AML patients has always been a priority for Aptos. As Bill mentioned, all the patients in our AML trial have already been treated with and have been failed by the best currently available therapeutics, which can include split-three inhibitors such as gilteritinib, mitostorin, cronolinib, quizartinib, and serafinib, as well as monetoclax, other treatments, and investigational drugs. So this is an extremely tough-to-treat patient population. At our EHA corporate event in June, we reported promising antileukemic activity for lexeptinib. The first dose corp receiving 450 milligrams BID, delivered encouraging antileukemic activity in multiple patients, including a durable MRD-negative complete response in a FLT3 ITD AML patient who had relapsed after two allogeneic stem cell transplants, multiple lines of chemotherapy, and prior FLT3 inhibitor therapy. Well, to date, we only have presented data on patients at the 450-milligram dose level. We also have completed the 600-milligram dose level with some patients remaining on treatment at the 450-milligram, 600-milligram dose level. And we expect to complete the 750-milligram dose level with currently enrolled patients. We are pleased that our sites are very engaged and that we have a vigorous flow of diverse patients. Also, it's important to note that at these doses, we continue to find that Lux is generally well tolerated with no toxicity signals or trends to date that we believe would prevent further dose escalation. This tolerability profile is critical because it is allowing us to reach the higher dose levels and will permit future use of acetinib in combination with other agents. Finally, I will mention that based on our clinical observations to date, data from our dose escalation studies are guiding the planning of our dose expansion studies to explore select disease genotypes under monotherapy and combination therapy programs, we expect to select an expansion dose and cohort strategy for AML around year end. For more information on the AML trial and clinical sites that are recruiting patients, please visit clinicaltrials.gov. Now, let me quickly bring you up to date on the status of after two five three, our second clinical candidate, currently in phase one A/B trials for AML and MDS. Some of these data were reported in the poster presented at EHA. To remind you. APTO253 is a MYC repressor, and the MYC oncogene is a major driver of cancer cell proliferation, including hematologic cancers. MYC is one of the most coveted drug targets in cancer. However, there are substantial challenges that have impeded direct MYC-targeted drug development and has been considered undruggable in the past. As a direct inhibitor of MYC transcription, APTO253 represents a novel approach for targeting this oncogenic pathway. Our MYC inhibitor, APTO253, currently is being tested in a Phase one ab trial in relapsed refractory AML and MDS patients. Currently, we're dosing patients at our sixth dose level of 210 mg per meter squared. In the ongoing Phase one ab study in patients with relapsed refractory AML and high-risk MDS, Apto-253 has been well-tolerated in the patients treated at 20, 40, 66, 100, and 150 mg per meter squared over multiple cycles. Thus far, there's no evidence of drug-related adverse events and, importantly, no evidence of myelosuppression. In the peripheral blood of patients, Apto-253 monomer rapidly transforms to and coexists with the mechanistically active iron-253 conjugate, and significantly higher concentrations of the iron conjugate are sustained for days, suggesting that further dose escalations may provide more sustained pressure on the MYC target gene and alter the biology of the tumor cells. Collectively, the findings from the ongoing phase 1A B study support continued dose escalation of APTA 253. The study is currently enrolling patients with AML and MDS at the sixth dose level of 210 milligrams per meter squared, and several subsequent dose escalations are anticipated. Of note, we are expanding the trial to include other MYC-driven hematologic cancers. Based on apta 253s mechanism of action, we also plan to treat patients with Burkitt's lymphoma and other B cell malignancies that are driven by MYC rearrangements. We are pleased by the progress across our clinical programs and that the safety and tolerability of both drug candidates, of and APTA253, are allowing dose escalation in all three of our ongoing trials. As we treat more patients at higher doses, we are generally adding pharmacologic and pharmacokinetic data that we hope to provide further updates at the ASH meeting later this year. I will now turn the call over to Dr. Yodi Morango, our Chief Financial Officer and Chief Business Officer, who will review financial results for the second quarter. Yodi?
5: Thank you, Raf and good afternoon everyone. Let's now turn to the quarterly results. We ended the second quarter with approximately $103 million in cash, cash equivalents and investments. During the quarter, we utilized approximately $8.8 million of cash in operating activities, which were attributable to activities surrounding our pipeline candidates, as well as general and administrative purposes. Based on current operations, cash on hand at June 30th provides the company with sufficient resources to fund all planned operations, including research and development, into the first half of 2023. Moving on to the income statement, we had no revenues for the quarter. Research and development expenses were $9.8 million for the quarter and attributable to clinical trial costs for our pipeline candidates, manufacturing of drug products for our clinical trials including continuing development on improving formulations of our pipeline candidates, and personnel costs for headcount supporting clinical trials, manufacturing activities, and research studies. G&A expenses for the quarter were $3.7 million, and our net loss for the quarter was $13.5 million, or 15 cents per share. More detailed information can be found in our filings on EDGAR and Cedar. I will now turn the call back over to Dr. Wright. Bill?
3: Thank you, Yodi. As we open the call for questions, please feel free to pose a question to any of us, Dr. Morongo, Dr. Behar, or myself. Operator, if you could, please introduce the first question.
1: At this time, I would like to remind everyone that if you would like to ask a question, please press star and the number one on your telephone keypad. Please limit your questions from one question per person. We'll pause for just a moment to compile the Q&A roster.
0: MIDI clinicians are menopause experts, offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.
1: Your first question comes from the line of Ted Tentoff from Piper Handler. Your line is open.
6: Thank you very much. So excited to hear about the uh, progress with um, LOX and um, AML and uh, CLL, and I'm wondering, just looking back at the preclinical data, was there anything that you saw that might start to point towards um, upper-level or dose-limiting toxicities to look for? And quick follow-up question, if I may, too, for 253, excited to see that data, really like that mechanism. Do you have um, plans to ultimately pursue that beyond hematologic malignancies? Thanks so much, guys.
3: All right, Ted. thanks for uh, Ted. Thanks for so much for coming on. Uh, let's start with the, uh, the first question on Luxeptin, and the preclinical data uh, associated with any uh, pointing to any potential DLTs. Uh, what I can say is that lux was extraordinarily well tolerated in all the, the preclinical studies. Uh, whether it be in mouse, rodent, or dogs. In the glp talks, what we did observe, and this is, all of our studies up until that point were once a day dosing in all the animal models and we had great anti-tumor activity, but we had not seen any toxicity associated with the model, uh, with the, with LUX in those models. We therefore went into the glp talks and decided to dose twice a day because we were trying to drive toxicity in the GLP-TOX uh, studies in both the uh, the rodents and the dogs. Uh, Even with that, going up to the maximum feasible dose in both species, we saw no effects on the the, uh, the rodents. But at the dogs, after 28 days of twice a day dosing, we did see a very slight reduction in neutrophil count. It was not considered sufficient to be adverse, so it was not uh, listed as an adverse event. Uh, But it gave us the signal that at the very highest doses, there may be a trend towards some of the uh, Uh, neutrophil reductions, uh, and that's what we are, will continue to look for uh, in the clinical trial. So in a moment I'll ask Dr. Behar if he wants to add to that. But also you mentioned 253, uh, uh, Daphyl 253, our MYC repressor. Uh, We agree with you, it is exciting to say to to find a molecule that actually can inhibit MYC. We have seen MYC inhibition in patients, uh, but at this point we have not seen uh, any uh, overt toxicity. Uh, Beyond this, as we continue to dose escalate through the heme malignancies, uh, we did start with AML and MDS. We are now also including the B-cell malignancies uh, that are uh, associated with MIC rearrangements. And Dr. Behar may want to add to that in just a moment. But we also would like to look beyond the heme malignancies and possibly go towards some of the solid tumors. A good example is that uh, in in non-human studies of pancreatic cancer, it's been shown that even transient reductions in MIC will highly sensitize those tumors uh, to, uh, to your classic chemotherapy. And that's a real need in the pancreatic cancers in humans. And so once we get to a dose in, in humans in which we believe we can uh, show consistent, transit or even prolonged inhibition of MYC expression, we'd like to be able to move that into, first possibly the dose escalation, excuse me, into the d- drug combination studies and some of those solid tumors and look for the, uh, uh, the combined effect uh, of drugs with chemotherapies, uh, pancreatic cancers, and possibly other solid tumors. So did that answer your questions? And perhaps I can ask Dr. Behar that. Ted?
6: Very thoroughly, yep. Yeah. And I okay. guess one quick follow-up. So if, if we're not looking for or we may not see dose-limiting tox. Are there markers, including even maybe just a plateauing of effect, that we would look for for dose selection? Or how do you think about that in the uh, good good position that you're in?
3: So I'll start on that, and then I'll ask Dr. Bayhard uh, to uh, to expand on it. So as one of the things that we look for is, are we achieving exposure levels in humans as we dose escalate to inhibit the the target kinases? Uh, The most uh, common way to do that, the accepted way, is to take the plasma from the patients, bring it back to the laboratory, place it on reporter cells, and then ask after treating the cells with the drug, uh, did you have enough uh, drug exposure there in the plasma to inhibit the pathways? And we have shown very nice inhibition of the Fosfolit3, the SIC, PDGFR, CSF1R, ERK, AKT pathways, as we continue to dose escalate further. And so as we get to the 750 milligram dose level, and we hope to get even greater exposure and greater hammering of some of those key oncogenic pathways as we dose escalate. So that's what we look for in terms of biomarkers. And so I'm going to ask Dr. Behar also to expand on this a a bit and to, uh, to to tell you how we're thinking about selecting that dose going forward for expansions.
4: Sure. Thanks, Bill. I think your point about the PIA assays, those assays you just described, is really important, but I think that that's a necessary but not sufficient uh, test to see if you're at the right dose. I think if we don't see inhibition in that assay, then we certainly need to go higher. But we designed the AML study in particular to start with a dose level that already shows inhibition of phosphoflid-3 at the lowest dose level in that study. So we're seeing that already. I think, like I said, I think it's not it's, it's, uh, not sufficient. It's necessary we need to see other activity as well before we decide that we're at the right dose level. And fortunately, uh, toxicity permitting, we're able to continue to dose escalate and push into these higher dose levels to to observe that. Now, ultimately, given the variability of AML patients, some that may have sensitizing mutations, some that may have more resistant mutations, it may not be one dose level that applies to all comers and we'll have to uh, continue to dose escalate to explore that. But we're in a good position, as you mentioned, where the, the toxicity profile is
3: allowing us to do that. Perfect. Thank you, Dr. Dr. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you,
1: Ted. Next question comes from Gregory Renza from RBC. Your line is open. Hi. This is Ying Wong for Greg, and thank you for taking my questions. Um, I was wondering if you could provide more color around the dose dependent anti tumor activity that was mentioned in the press release just now, and what is your latest thinking around dose escalation beyond the 900 MIG dose level? Thank
3: you. All right. So again, I'll start on it, then I'll ask uh, Dr. Behar to uh, to, to provide uh, a bit more color around it as you asked for. Uh, so as we have, especially in the B-cell malignancy patients, as we have uh, continued to dose escalate, at some of the lower dose levels, we are seeing some of the the, the, the what we call the markers or the indicators of activity. Uh, inhibition of BTK, uh, induction of on-target lymphocytosis, and some levels of tumor inhibition. But as we went to higher and higher doses, we started seeing greater levels of tumor inhibition, and in particular in patients, uh, often when we uh, would see we would start out at one dose, and then we would uh, expand or increase them to a a higher dose level. So I'll ask Dr. Behar to step in at that point and uh, talk about what we've seen there.
4: Yeah, I think your example, though, is exactly the one that we're referring to, uh, where you have a patient that starts at a lower dose level, does not see the kind of activity you would hope to see, and then upon increasing the dose then begins to see improvements. And as we've gone to higher dose levels, we've also seen higher exposures, so we're hopeful that that will will translate into greater activity. We have seen the phenomena that we described at the EHA meeting, where some patients will initially come on study and will see initial tumor growth and then in a couple of these examples, patients were allowed to dose escalate and actually have seen some reduction in that tumor growth in that peak, whether it be below baseline or not. It suggests that there is some activity as we get to those higher dose levels. I think it's a good motivator for continuing to dose escalate and see if we can get greater exposures in individuals and therefore you know, greater likelihood of response.
3: Yeah, so, that, uh, so let me play off that because uh, she had also asked about uh, possibly increasing beyond the 900 milligram dose level. So we're at the 750 now. We have plans to go to the 900 milligram dose level uh, thereafter. Uh, we hope that we get increased exposure as we go to the higher dose levels, uh, and we also hope it continues to be tolerated well. If we see that the, the pharmacokinetics exposures continue to increase, it's tolerated well, we would seek to, uh, to increase uh, beyond the 900 milligram dose level. If the, the PK is plateauing off or if we see some uh, safety signals, um, that that may take us in a different direction. Did that answer your question?
1: Yes, it did. Thank you. And I just have a quick follow-up, if I may, on the PIA assay. Um, yes. I was wondering, based on the data so far, what's your expectation around the serum level that will be needed to inhibit FLT3 with resistant mutations, and where does that translate in terms of dose levels? Thank you.
3: You know, what's what's interesting is Dr. Behar just mentioned just a moment ago how diverse these patients are with AML, and we've actually presented some of the data uh, with the PISA looking at FLT3, and it is clear when you get to 0.5 micromolar, uh, you're inhibiting uh, essentially all of the activity of the the FLT3, uh, in particular when you have the FLT3 ITD, but in these patients, FLT3 is only part of the, uh, what's driving these tumors. So you'll have the FLT3 as well as a number of other tumors. So it is essential for us to show that we're inhibiting the FLT3 activity, uh, but we also want to get as high as we possibly can to hit as many pathways as possible. So you want to achieve the highest um, exposure levels that are tolerated in humans to, to try to hit the, the pathways as, as much as you can. And trying to think what else. Oh, and then if, as we look to wild type, Typically, it takes a little bit more drug to inhibit the wild-type FLT3, um, but we are seeing inhibition of that too. We have a PI assay. I think we're the only company that does this. We look at we have two different cell uh, reporter cells. One is FLT3 wild-type, one is FLT3 ITD, and we've already shown that that we also inhibit the uh, the wild-type FLT3 at sub-micromolar levels, and we do so very effectively. Uh, but again, you need to inhibit. The, the other uh, receptors at the cell service, PDGFR, ALBA, CSF1R, TRAC, uh, as well as some of the internal uh, the kinases, the 6 uh, S-Y-K-SICK, uh, as well as maybe the ERKs and some of the auroras and some of the others. So we need more drug, or we always want to try to get more drug in as much as will be tolerated. Dr. Behar, did you want to add to that?
4: Yeah, I'll point out that, you know, it's tempting to look at a drug like Lux and, and call it a FLIT3 inhibitor. I mean, that is an accurate description of what it does, but it does so many other things that I think are relevant to its activity, that we have to take those into account. Now you asked specifically about the inhibition of the resistance mutations that, for, for example, could arise in the setting of prior treatment with another agent. One of those resistance mutations are, are, can be the, resist, the mutations that occur in the tyrosine kinase domain. Certain FLIT3 inhibitors that are out there don't target that very effectively, Uh, We know from preclinical data that luxetinib is very effective at targeting those kinds of mutations that could arise in the setting of resistance. The other mutation that can arise is a gatekeeper mutation, F691L, and our preclinical data, again, suggests that we have low nanomolar activity against that mutation also. Uh, We haven't had the opportunity to to explore that using the PIA assay specifically, but um, uh, we believe that we are well above the concentrations that should be able to do that in that type of in vitro assay.
1: Great. Thank you very much. Next question comes from the line of John Newman from Canaccord. Your line is open.
6: Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my question. Um, I just had a question on the type of patients that you're now enrolling for lexeptionib
4: in the AML study, specifically at the 750 milligram cohort. I'm just curious if you're looking to enrich for FLT3 here, for example, um, or if you're taking all patients. And also, um, wondering if you're getting any
7: patients with prior successful transplants, and if you can talk a little bit about um, how much follow-up you might
3: have on this cohort as we reach the end of 2021. Thanks. All right. <laughs> So the types of patients, well, we have not disclosed the types of patients uh, definitively that, that are on the 750 milligram dose level, uh, but I'll remind you, it is an all-comer in which we have both FLT3 wild type and FLT3 uh, mutated patients. Uh, it is clear that we have shown activity already against the FLT3 ITD uh, mutant patients. Uh, we We clearly want to get additional patients like that on the study to be able to prove that we can we can have activity against multiple FLT3 ITD patients because, again, every one of those represents a different patient, uh, a different, almost a different disease because they have such a wide diversity of other mutations, and they've been treated with, uh, with different drugs coming into that. At the same time, we absolutely want to have FLT3 wild-type patients. And when I say that, okay, it may be wild-type FLT3. It may be overexpressed wild-type FLT3. But, again, you have all these other mutations in there that, that gives rise to the disease. Um, so we, uh, we we want to provide balance, and we've talked about that uh, all the way through. Uh, we clearly want to have the flip 3 mutated as well as uh, as wild-type patients. Um, in terms of patients that have uh, received successful transplants, um, we highlight one patient in particular. It's the patient in which we... we uh, uh, we reported the complete response, the MRD-negative complete response. That patient had had two successful transplants and then uh, then relapsed after several years after the su- successful transplant. Uh, so perhaps Dr. Behar would like to add a bit more to that to talk about the data coming.
4: Yeah, uh, we do allow patients that have had prior transplants uh, on study and then have subsequently relapsed, and several other patients have met those criteria. Uh, we... We do also try to balance our cohorts to include wild-type and FLT3 mutant patients with sites, you know, selecting the patients that they believe are more likely to respond to, to, to help us with that. So we are not trying to uh, to limit enrollment in any way. We want to get a clean picture for, for both wild-type and FLT3 mutant patients as we make decisions about how they go into expansion. And then you asked about how much follow-up we'll have by year end. Uh, you can gauge from, from when we have announced progress in the study, how, how, many, how much time it will be uh, from that point. And as we mentioned, uh, we believe that we'll be able to complete the 750 milligram dose escalation cohort for AML with the patients that we currently have enrolled. Great. Okay, thank you.
3: Quick, yes. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Next question,
6: please
1: next question comes from the line of Alethea Young from Cantor kind of Fitzgerald. Your line is open. Hi, this is Emily on for Alethea. Thanks for taking our questions. I'm curious if you have any updates on potential combination approaches for AML. Do you plan to maybe add combination cohorts in the dose expansion um, portion of the phase one study? And if so, what agents would you potentially consider? And then I'm also curious as you said that you would have the dose. Um, expansion strategy by year-end. How does the 900-meg dose cohort um, fit into that? Do you think you could potentially enroll that by the end of the year? Or if not, um, what are your thoughts about that? Thank you.
3: All right, Emily. Uh, So again, we'll tag team this one. I'll start out. Uh, in terms of the combination approaches, we we absolutely want to pursue com- combination approaches. We we've, we've shown this drug has activity as a single agent. We want to prove that in expansions uh, with specific uh, either genotypic or phenotypically defined patients. That is as a single agent monotherapy. We are pursuing that, but in parallel, we do we do plan to perform uh, drug combination studies. We haven't disclosed exactly which ones that we're going to uh, pursue yet. We will continue to collect data throughout the remainder of this year uh, with the current study, the patient populations, and then see which uh, which types of combinations would be appropriate in the particular patient populations. By that I may see it may be relapse refractory, more first line, depending on what we see in the patient types that we look at, we will uh, choose the uh, the drug combinations appropriately. Uh, And then in terms of the 900 milligram, uh, how does that fit into the process? Well, again, we're going into the 900 milligram. If it is tolerated well, if we're getting greater exposure, then we will continue to dose escalate. That will then impact the timing of the, uh, of the um, expansion cohorts. Uh, we may decide to move on with the 750 and 900 or possibly a higher dose level. Uh, we will follow the data, which is what we always do, and try to make the rational decisions and then provide you with additional information toward the, the year end. Dr. Behar, any additional
4: Nothing additional to your comment about the 900 milligram cohort. I think that that's accurate. With regard to combinations, we want to be able to combine with other agents because we think that the, the future of the treatment of AML will be in combination, just as it has been for other hematologic malignancies where they have several therapeutic options available, like multiple myeloma, for example. And I think one of the keys to that is to have a drug that doesn't bring added toxicity to the table so that you're able to combine more cleanly with another agent, not necessarily exacerbate the toxicity and be able to push the doses that are likely to be therapeutic for both.
3: Yeah, great point. I should have brought that up. Thank you, Dr. Bayhart. All right, and thank you, Emily.
1: Next question comes from the line of Matthew Cross from Alliance Global Partners. Your line is open.
7: Hey, guys. Hope everyone is doing well, and and thanks for taking a couple of questions from me. Um, I I think you kind of laid out well the, the rationale for for dosing higher um, in both of these trials now that we're getting up to, you know, 750 and, and potentially going on to 900, it sounds like, um, I was curious how much of a priority you feel it is also to either backfill or, or dose escalate um, to, to, you know, the dose levels where we've seen pretty substantial e- exposure, um, you know, so the 600 and 750 milligram dosages um, and, and whether that differs based on, on the indication we're talking about. Um, And kind of the second part, similarly, as as we're getting higher up into dosage here, um, you know, I guess you were talking about in the preclinical setting, um, moving from from, uh, QD to BID, I was was curious if we're moving into potentially 900 by, you know, if not the end of this year, then, then probably early next um, and you're giving, I guess at, at 750, about five pills twice a day, 900 would be six twice a day. Um was curious if you could speak to, to you know, whether pill burden has been a problem at all for these patients or if there's a way to, to circumvent that. Um, I believe there was some maybe transient commentary about, about formulation work, so I was just curious to get um, some insight there as you're dosing higher.
3: Thanks. All right. Thanks, Matt. Oh, it was great to have somebody on the phone that looks down on me. Uh, so... <laughs> So let me start with talking about as we dose escalate the pill burden. Uh, So, yes, you are correct. Uh, In the past, we have mentioned uh, formulation development activities, but we really haven't said that much about it except that we continue to pursue it. Uh, At 750, we do have five uh, capsules twice a day. At 900, it will be six capsules twice a day. So we would look to uh, reduce that pill burden. There are a couple of ways that we can do that. Um, But one of the things that we are doing is, as with, most drugs uh, in phase one and phase two efforts continue then to improve the formulation as you move toward the later stage uh, development as well as commercialization. And we are often asked about the potential for new uh, formulations for Lux, given that our formulation does require administration of such high doses. Um, we have been developing a new oral formulation that we we believe it may significantly improve absorption of Lux. Uh, the new formulation has been successful in non-human models to date. It's very encouraging. Uh, we're actually preparing it for GMP manufacturing stability testing uh, in preparation for advancement to the clinic. Um, what I would say is we're happy with what we're seeing. We're happy with what we've seen in animal models, multiple animal models to date. Um, we, As I said, we are moving it forward toward uh, uh, toward GMP manufacture, but i also remind you that the manufacturing stability regulatory risks still remain. There are no guarantees that this will actually uh, work in humans, that that we will show improved properties. Um, But we feel like it's getting to the stage now that we can actually talk about it a bit. I appreciate you asking uh, the question. So it is promising. Uh, It may reduce the pill burden. It may reduce the amount of the milligrams that we have to give each day to humans. And uh, so we're keeping our fingers crossed. Everything looks good thus far, but we're not quite there yet. And we hope to get it into humans as soon as we can. So, good question. Okay, so what was the follow-up?
4: I can I can take the backfill question if you like, though.
3: Okay, thanks. Please do.
4: You mentioned about backfilling and then further dose escalating patients. I think backfilling provides with several advantages. Uh, one, just fairly straightforward advantage is that. It can be frustrating to enroll patients to a Phase one study in dose escalation there are a limited number of slots. Patients can't wait necessarily until the next dose cohort is open. So having a mechanism to put a patient on study in a backfill when the dose escalation cohort is closed is is, uh, often welcomed by sites and continues to, to favor ongoing site engagement. But from our standpoint, where we're trying to learn more about the safety and efficacy of the drug, it gives us the opportunity to explore more patients and to get at some of that diversity of AML by putting patients with different genotypes or phenotypes on on study than we might otherwise uh, be able to do during dose escalation. So it is an opportunity to learn more about the agent and, and get more patients on. So we think it's a win-win. It's it's really positive for us understanding the drug. It's positive for patients who would like to get on study, and it's positive for the sites who are sometimes frustrated with the uh, the pace of a dose one dose escalation phase one dose escalation
7: study. Thank you, Dr. Behar. Matt, did we... Okay, That very much did on... Okay.
3: Operator?
1: We have time for one more question. Matt Bigler from Oppenheimer, your line is open.
3: Oh, hey,
4: bingo. Thanks, guys, for squeezing me
5: in. Um, so I'll <laughs>
4: add that I definitely, don't, uh, I definitely don't look down on you. I have to look up to you. I'm only 5'10". Um, oh, no. I'm going to ask maybe a multi-part question on, on the evolving treatment landscape and CLL and maybe how that's uh, affecting demographics in your phase one trial. Um, specifically, are, are you noticing any uptick or are you getting any patients with prior uh, non-covalent BTK exposure, um, and, and I kind of wanted to hear your thoughts as a follow-up on emerging resistance mechanisms to, to the non-covalent class as a whole and whether you think LUX might uh, be able to show some effectiveness here. Thanks.
3: All right. Again, I'll start, and then we'll ask Dr. Behar to come in. So in terms of the evolving landscape in CLL, you ask in particular if we're uh, seeing patients that are getting treated with non-covalent BTK inhibitors. And the answer is yes, uh, we're, we're seeing patients that uh, have been treated with effectively every type of treatment out there, that, and they failed those, and then they come to us. So it is, many of these are, are very heavily pretreated patients, whether it's the covalent BTKs, non-covalent BTK inhibitors, venetoclax, rituximab, PI3K inhibitors, uh, EIEIO, and Dr. Behart can talk a little, little bit about more of that, but let me just mention very quickly In terms of the resistance that we're beginning to see in a lot of these patients, um, yes, of course, you you will get some patients uh, coming forward that have mutations in BDK, but those are actually quite rare. Most of them that we're uh, seeing emerge now are in the RAS and the PPT3 pathways. Um, So we think that is an an area that's keen for us uh, because once you start getting the RAS and the PPT3 mutations, most other drugs you don't see activity or you lose sufficient activity that you just cannot achieve those exposure levels in the bloodstream. We've actually done studies, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Brian Drucker did studies uh, with various cells that had RAS and P53 mutations, and they maintain sensitivity for LUX. So we're hoping that as patients fail the other types of molecules out there and the vast array of other molecules, that it's actually driving the cells towards sensitivity to our drug. But again, these are very experienced patients. Uh, Dr. Behar, would you
4: plead that? Yeah, no, I think that that's correct. I, I think that um, we are seeing patients that have had that kind of prior exposure in, in some of our sites. Um, I don't think we entirely understand what the patterns of resistance are going to be for them, but obviously the patterns of resistance we've seen for ibrutinib aren't just the mutations of, of uh, the enzyme itself, BTK. They also include other pathways like PLC, gamma-2, and so on. So I, unclear to me if... Uh, non-covalent inhibitors will have superior activity in those cases where the BTK molecule itself isn't mutated, but they themselves may induce other mutations of BTK that we'll have to explore uh, with regard to the activity of our drug. I think it's too early to know yet.
3: That makes sense. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Matt.
1: And I'm currently showing no further questions. I will now turn the call back over to Dr. Rice for closing remarks.
3: All right. Well, I want to thank everyone for joining us this afternoon. Um, It's are at a very very exciting stage here with Aptos Development. Uh, None of this would be possible without the dedication of our employees, investigators, and more importantly, the patients who are helping advance our important work. We're also very appreciative of our shareholders and the research analysts. We thank you for your continued support. We look forward to keeping you all apprised uh, of our progress in the second half of the year, and I want to thank you and have a wonderful evening.
1: Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. That concludes
0: today's conference. You may all disconnect and have a wonderful day. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot slash podcast. Easier said, done. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.